Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. The Psalms are right in the middle of your Bible. If you don't have one, halfway down the aisles are some black Bibles you can use. Feel free to get up and get one of those and turn to Psalm 96. We all know what a crescendo is, even if we've never had a music lesson. It's a gradual increase of volume and intensity in a piece of music. It's that loudest and most intense part of a of a movie's musical score. Well, God's story, the Bible, the Bible is a story. That story has a slow-moving but ever-growing crescendo. It's a crescendo of praise. Psalm 96 shows us the big picture of this crescendo of praise. It gives us a panoramic snapshot of really God's plan, even the end, even though it's written at the time of David, probably. Before we read it, let me note some things about it, different movements in it. Psalm 96 first addresses God's people, calling them to their proper response to their God, that response of worship. But it also calls on God's people to not keep it to themselves, but be conduits of God's glory and God's goodness in the world. They are to promote God's glory and God's salvation to the world. And Psalm 96 does just that. It not only calls on God's people to promote his glory in the world, it calls on the whole world to worship its God, to reckon with its creator. And then it ends by calling on the rest of creation, even inanimate creation, even non-human creation, to worship its creator for who he is and for what he's done. You can see it's a swell of praise to God, a crescendo. It says this, Psalm 96, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord... Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is God's word for us this morning. And like so many psalms, this psalm has themes that are sort of wrapped around, intertwined, repeated in different ways. 
And yet, like I said, it does seem to flow. It does seem to have a progression to it. It does seem to have some distinguishable parts doing different things. I think there are four parts to this psalm. The first would be what we maybe call an an invitation to worship. The invitation to worship is in verses 1 through 3. Really, it's more than an invitation. It's a summons, right? It's not... It's not as soft as an invitation. It's a summons. And it starts by summoning God's people to worship. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. God's people are supposed to sing a new song. What's this mean, a new song? You might think it just means a song that's new, newly written, not an oldie. Well, it is that, but it's a song about something new that God has done, hence a reason for a new song to describe it and to praise him for it. You see, Psalm 96 was at one time a new song. It was in First Chronicles 16. There, we find the story behind Psalm 96. Sometimes you can find the story to a psalm by the, be- the beginning of that psalm, a heading at that psalm. This was written when David was in the wilderness or something like that. Well, this one doesn't have a heading. But we see the exact same psalm, most of it, in First Chronicles 16. That's an important chapter in God's plan. David there writes this psalm in response to the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God ascending, going up to the holy mountain, where there God will dwell in the midst of his people. Eventually, through Solomon, uh, it will be a temple, a permanent building. So God's doing something new, right? Sing a new song to the Lord. Well, new song is in other psalms as well. Psalm 98, just two over. Verse 1, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. But see, it says, for he has done marvelous things, new things, looking for new ways of describing and praising him for his ongoing, even new work. So in Isaiah 42, it talks about something in the future that's big. It says, the former things have come to pass. It's really looking into the future, even though it's written in past tense. These things have come to pass. It's really describing a time when these things have come to pass. And new things are now, in the present time, being declared through Isaiah. Before they spring forth, I'll tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song. The Lord is doing a new thing. Old things are passing away. So sing to him a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. This new song, God was going to do something big and new, has to do with the coastlands, those at the ends of the earth. And that's like Psalm 96, which says, Sing to him all the earth, verse 1. Or in verse 3, The nations, declare his glory among the nations. All the peoples, it says in verse 3. And then in verse 7, it talks about the families of the peoples. Now, we've seen this thing before in the Psalms. Psalm 67 is one of these things that describes God's praise going global. His glory spreading in the world to people, but not just people. 
peoples, which means people groups, what we call today cultures. Cultures are tongues, languages, people groups. God's plan all along was that this thing would go global. In Genesis 12, God was speaking to Abraham giving him great promises for him and his offspring. But those were promises, God said, that Abraham one day, Genesis 12, would would be a blessing to the families of the earth. One day through Abraham would come a seed. A seed, in the New Testament, we know as Jesus Now, between Abraham in Genesis 12 and Jesus, the fulfillment of that blessing to the whole world, you get this theme repeated again and again throughout the whole Old Testament. That that theme that we're seeing here in Psalm 96, it's in the prophets as well, where they're looking forward to the coming of Christ. And they're seeing that this will, God's plan will go global when Christ comes. Paul talks about this in Romans 15. He says, Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he starts just rattling off Old Testament quotes that prove his point. So he quotes from Psalm 18. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And then he just lists another one. This one's from Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And then Psalm 117, another one. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles or nations. Let all the peoples, plural, extol him. This is God's plan, that his glory gets recognized on a global level. One day it will be complete. Habakkuk 2.17 says, One day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like waters cover the sea. Waters cover the sea completely. It's the same thing. Yet one day, God's glory will be on earth like that. And then they will sing a new song. New song pops up again in Revelation 5. John sees heaven. And he sees them sing a new song. Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, referring to Jesus, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. One day God's gospel, his glory will go forth in this world, and one day every single people group will be penetrated with that gospel. We don't know how much. We know eventually it will be a multitude which no man can number. That's what it says in Revelation 5. But it's not just about numbers. It's about every tribe and language and people being represented. That's worthy of a new song. God's doing something new. We know where it's going, but it's got to get there, right? It's not there yet. There are thousands of people groups that are not yet reached with the gospel. Romans 10 says, how will they believe unless someone preaches to them? And how will they preach to them unless they go? And how will they go unless they're sent? God's plan is that there are some who stay and send. There are those who go and proclaim. And as they go and proclaim, some will be saved as they believe 
the gospel, the good news they hear. That's God's plan for us now. But you see it hinted at in Psalm 96. Well, more than hinted at. It's telling God's people here to tell of his salvation. Verse 2, tell of his salvation. Not just occasionally, but from day to day. Not just when asked about it and you have to defend it. But proclaim it. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Verse 3 says, declare his glory among the nations. Oh, his glory. What is his glory? Well, it's his self-revelation. It's a hard word to define. But it's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. God showing forth who he is and what he's like. It's something like his radiance. It's, It's his aura. I mean, if you dare say that. Declare that glory, who he is, what he's done, what he's like among the nations. Verse 10 says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So again, this means every Christian saying, telling, declaring from day to day, as we have opportunity, right where you are, what Martin Luther called your station. Every one of us has a station that God's put us in. It's your life. It's that job and this family and that neighborhood and this city. Your station. God's placed you in a station. And he has purposes for you. Global glory purposes. So some will stay and tell, declare right where they are. Some will go though. Some will go to faraway lands where the gospel is not yet known. Romans 15 tells us that Paul thought, This was really important. He said, I've aimed to preach Christ not where he's already named. Why? That'd be easier. Yeah, but it's got to go, right? It's got to spread. And Paul understood that it has to get to more, not just people, but more peoples. So some go. And those who go need sending, according to Romans 10. Some stay. And when we stay, we don't just stay and speak, but we also send, we fund it. But what we fund is a mission of God's glory in the gospel. It's about God's glory. That's why we say as a church, Desert Springs Church is spreading God's glory broader and deeper. It's got to spread broader. It's got to reach further in this city and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But it's got to Go deeper. It's got to be anchored more deeply. We need to know more, see more, trust more, live like it more. We need more of his glory penetrating to a a deeper corner of our hearts and lives. This is the invitation. This is the invitation in Psalm 96 to worship and really to witness, right? It's two W's, worship and witness. Secondly, though, let's talk about the motivation for worship and witness. The why. Why do this? We've already seen some reasons in verses 2 and 3. I mean, one would be he's commanded it. It says, sing, declare, tell. It's not a suggestion. It's, it's not just an invitation. It's really a command. That's one reason why we worship and we witness. Also because of his salvation. Verse 2. 
tell of his salvation from day to day. Those of you who know his salvation, you know his mercy. You know it's not earned or deserved. And yet, he's merciful, forgiving. His steadfast love endures forever. His mercies are new every day. Great is his faithfulness. We must worship him and witness of him in the world because we know that salvation, because he's glorious, verse 3 says, and because he's done, verse 3 says, marvelous works. Marvelous works. The Psalms do such a good job of showing us how to praise God in light of his marvelous works. Really, there are two kind of categories for the marvelous works of God talked about in the Psalms. One is creation. The Lord has created, therefore, worship him or fear him. He spoke and it was done, therefore, let all the earth stand in awe of him. And another category would be his works in history. How he's shown his power and his glory and his promises. How he's been faithful to his word. How he's been a merciful and kind and covenanting God. You see these stories in the Psalms as they look back through the lens of the psalm into the other, parts, uh, the other parts of the Old Testament, like the Exodus story where God freed his people and led them through the desert despite their grumblings and despite their unbelief. He was faithful. But then, back to Psalm 96, verse 4 tells us why else we should worship and witness. It says, because he's great. He's great, and and hence he's greatly to be praised. His praise is only appropriate because it's simply recognizing reality. He is great, so he deserves great praise. Verse 8 says we should give him the glory that's due his name. He's a God, verse 4 says, that's to be feared. To be feared above all God's. Even with salvation, and as we'll see, even unto joy and happiness and and freedom, he's a God who's yet to be feared. We'll see that more clearly as we work our way through the psalm. Look at verse 5. Here, it tells us that we should worship him because he's, he's the only God. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Now, there's a play on words here in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew. The Hebrew word for God in verse 5 is Elohim. And the Hebrew word for idols is Elil. They sound similar, don't they? Well, Elil, for idols, it means literally nothing. That's what it means, nothing. So it's comparing these two L's, Elohim, Elil, and one is the God, and the other one, these other ones are nothing. Listen how Isaiah 41 mocks these nothings purported as gods. God speaks through Isaiah and says, let them bring their idols. Tell us what's to happen. Tell us the future. If you're a God, predict the future. Tell us the former things, if you can't tell us the future, what they are, that we might consider them, that we might know their outcome. 
or declare us the things that are to come, the future. Tell us what's to come hereafter, that we might know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. You can't do good or harm. You, you can't tell us the future or the past. You can't tell us anything. You can't do anything. Oh, I love how Habakkuk 2 puts it. Mocking idols, these other gods. Again, it says, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, uh, it's a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation. His God is something he made. And what is it? It's a speechless idol. So woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! Who says to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Can a stone teach? Can a piece of wood declare the future? Communicate anything? No! Behold, it's just overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord, he's in his holy temple. He's alive and well. So let all the earth keep silence before him. Be still and know that he is God. He's the Lord and there is none besides him. We worship him because he's the only one. Everything else is a pathetic, laughable knockoff. We should worship him also because of his splendor and majesty, verse 6 says, because of his strength and his beauty. Now, this isn't talking about physical strength, physical splendor, rather, physical beauty. It's talking about God in his attributes. God reveals himself in his glory through his word, through words. Sometimes he reveals himself by pulling back the curtain on the invisible God and showing something that one of his people can see, like, like Abraham seeing a burning bush, or you know, God's people in the wilderness following that, that fire by night and that cloud by day, or God's people seeing God come down on Mount Sinai and the whole thing is fire and smoke, it's quaking. Sometimes God pulls back the corner of his glory and shows us something special. But that's recorded in his word. Yes, we have creation, which gives us a reflection of his glory, a reflection of his splendor and his beauty, but, but, but not like his word does. His word describes who he is and what he's done. It's his, it's his self-revelation. So it's trustworthy. One day we'll see Jesus face to face. We'll see splendor and glory. Read Revelation 1 as one example of a symbol-loaded uh, description of Jesus, what it might be like when we see him one day in all of his glory. One day we'll see him as he is, but until then we go to his word to see splendor and majesty, strength and beauty. In other words, worship and witness flow out of seeing God. Not literally, but with the eyes of faith in his word, we are after an encounter with God. That's what incites worship. That's what incites witness. Remember in Acts 4, the disciples, 
They're persecuted, threatened. They say, they're told, you cannot speak the things, you can't speak of Jesus here anymore, or it'll be trouble for you. And they say, we cannot help but speak the things which we've heard and seen. They'd heard and seen in such a way that they had the can't help it. And we, too, want to meet God in such a way that we worship with the can't help it. We speak of him with the can't help it. When's the last time you read God's word or maybe even heard a sermon and you felt like it was an encounter with God? It was meeting with the living God. It was awe-filling, jaw-dropping, joy-inducing. It was devastating and yet sweet. Well, there are glimpses of God's glory in the Bible that God, uh, as I said, shows something of himself to his people in a powerful way. And it's amazing the response you see. Like in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah gets a vision of God's temple and God in it. And it doesn't describe God, but it describes the scene. And hears, he hears the angels crying, holy, holy, holy. And his response is this. Woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Or in the story of Job, you might know that Job suffers greatly and then raises a lot of questions with God. He wants to get his questions answered before God. He wants a hearing before God. And that goes on for chapters and chapters. Finally, in chapter 38, God answers him, but not like he would like. God really verbally bats him from one side of the universe to the other with these rhetorical questions. Where were you when I created the stars? Where were you when I hung the earth in its place? Where were you? Where were you? Who are you? For four chapters, God talks to Job like that, and Job finally answers in 42. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In case you think that these are just a couple of weird guys with a self esteem problem, or that you think that this is just limited to the Old Testament, don't forget the story in Luke 5 the disciples fishing with Jesus. After a whole day of no success, Jesus tells them to cast their nets out again one more time, and they do, and they have an immediate, huge catch. Nets are breaking. They have to get a second boat, and both boats are about to go under from all the fish. And how does Peter respond? Hey, thanks so much for all this fish. This is awesome. How'd you do that? Do it again. We don't have to work anymore. No. Here's how Peter responds. He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Why'd you bring up your sin, Peter? Well, because he sees the king. I mean, the one who commands fish to go into that net, he's the one who commands people as well. He's sovereign over them. In seeing Jesus for who he is. Peter saw himself for who he is and knew he was in trouble. 
God is sovereign. He's the creator. He's the sustainer, according to Psalm 96. And he's the judge. Verse 10 says, he will judge the peoples with equity. He's the judge, and he's coming. Come back to that in just a minute. Thirdly, though, notice the description of worship. The description of worship. Verses 7 to 10 talk about the description. You know, there are 16 different words for praise in Psalm 96. One of them is mentioned four times, singing. That's right at the beginning. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Four times singing is mentioned here in Psalm 96. That's part of what praise is, but not just any singing. It's praise to him, singing to him, which describes him. God's praise should be descriptive. The Psalms do this. They come to a part of God, a part of his being, a part of his character, a part of his promises, a part of his plan, and it's like a tornado of praise. Just circles about, going over the same material in different ways. It's descriptive. Now, we need help with, with descriptive praise to God when we're on our own. Uh, songs help us think through different parts of God, and it's good to use those songs. But, but we're supposed to pray, too, right? We're supposed to just be alone with God and pray. When we do that, we need help to think through his attributes and what he's done. It takes work to, 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 to not just give up on something so simple. I've said before, it's not good affection and communication to your wife if, if, you're, if you're like Frankenstein, just simply saying, mm, nice, right? If, if your compliments to your wife get no better than, mm, nice, then... You're missing out, right? She wants to hear that you've noticed things. She wants you to, to comment on her eyes or her smile or, or, or her hair or, or whatever. And it takes work to do that. And just in the same way, God is great. And he's greatly to be praised, which means describe him and his marvelous works in various ways. And do it to him. That's what ascribing is. It's describing to him. You see in verse 7 and in verse 8, three times it says, Ascribe to God, describe to him who he is and what he's done, and do it at some length and with some effort. And when you do that, verse 4 says, you'll, you'll fear him. That's part of what awe in worship is. Trembling before him, verse 9 says, noting his unparalleled supremacy. It's coming to him in holiness. It's trusting him because he's the good God who made all that is. And it's, it's established, verse 10. He's established the world and it will not change. It's fixed. Until he says so, it's in its place. So we trust him. And we declare him. We tell of this. We invite others. That's part of what praise is. It bubbles over in, into our communication with each other. Bubbles over into our communication with the world. We can't help but speak the things which we've heard and seen. And, and look at verse 11 and 12. God's praise can also be described like, like heaven and earth and like everything in it. We too should be glad we should rejoice. We should exalt. 
This is what praise is. The fourth thing I want to show you in Psalm 96 is the consummation of worship. We've seen the invitation, we've seen the motivation, we've seen the description, and now we see the consummation of worship and witness, the fulfillment of it. See verse 10 at the end, it says, He will judge the peoples with equity. And verse 13 says, He comes to judge the earth, and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. He comes. He comes. Remember, this was first written at the time of 1 Chronicles 16. And God was coming in a real and powerful way. He was doing a new thing as as the Ark of the Covenant ascended that holy hill for a dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. He comes. He comes to judge. He comes with equity. He comes in righteousness. He comes in faithfulness. He was coming, you could say, in 1 Chronicles 16. But that wasn't the end of the story. The prophets after the time of David, kept talking about God coming again one day. He would come eventually in a bigger and better way. And his coming meant that the inanimate, non-human parts of creation would even join in the crescendo of praise. See Psalm 96, verse 11. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Trees singing? They will sing before the Lord for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. This is in other psalms. It's in Isaiah 44. Sing, O heavens, sky, for the Lord, for he has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. And then 11 chapters later, the same thing. Again, creation praising God in these weird ways. Verse 12 of Isaiah 55 says, You shall go out in joy, and you'll be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you will break forth into singing. And the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, shall come the cypress. Instead of the briar, shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off or shall not end. A sign. Something's coming that's going to defeat the curse. In Genesis 3, God cursed Adam and Eve for their sin. He cursed the serpent for its temptation. And he cursed the ground. That's why we have thorns and thistles. There were no goat heads in the garden. But one day, one day, God will change all that. Listen to Romans 8. Romans 8 says that the creation now waits with eager longing for the, rev- the, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility in the curse, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, God. 
in hope that the creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, Paul says, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Earthquakes, lightnings, volcanoes, birth pains. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we still groan inwardly as we wait for our final adoption as sons. The redemption even of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. God's plan is not just forgiveness, but a whole new creation. That's why when Jesus, in Luke 19, was getting much praise from his disciples, and the Pharisees protested, tell them to shut up, they're praising you, they're worshiping you, and you're, they think he's just a man. That's why Jesus says, if the stones were silent, Uh, If the disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, one day, heaven and earth will be one. God's final step in the plan for your redemption is not just heaven, not just clouds and harps, but a new heaven and a new earth. Heaven and earth being one, united on this single purpose of God's glory being recognized in all things. So, Psalm 96 is ultimately about Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment of these promises. He's the one who came to us. God finally came to us. Remember? The prophets were saying, one's coming, God's coming. God's going to come, and he's going to do something big, and it's so big That creation itself will be shaken up and worshiping its maker. But Jesus came in two stages. He came first 2,000 years ago in humility, in, in suffering, in servantry, and even death. Death upon a cross for us. When he comes again, it will be mighty and glorious. He will judge with equity. He will judge in righteousness. Which means that that judgment will either be our rescue if we're his, we're in him, or it will be our retribution. It will either be a day of dread or a day of delight. This couldn't be any clearer, but in 2 Thessalonians 1, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in that day in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed. For those who haven't believed... Revelation 6 describes it in horrific terms. The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free. In that day when Jesus comes, they will hide themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains 
And they will call on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? I pray that's not you. I pray you know Jesus, his gospel, his glory. I pray that you know, you've tasted and seen that he's good, that there's salvation in him. And yet, he's a righteous judge. He will judge in equity. And Jesus' coming will either be for our joy or for our judgment. Christians are eager for the Lord's return, just like all of creation is. We're groaning, waiting for the day when he gets this all right. And in the meantime, we've been part of a new creation already. 2 Corinthians 5 says, If any man's in Christ, he's part of a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, he's making all things new. We don't see it all yet. Hebrews 2 says, God's put everything under Jesus' feet. He rules. He's in control. We don't yet see all things under his feet, but one day we will. One day, oh, joy to the world. We sing this at Christmas. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. God's plan of redemption includes not just your soul, but your body. Not just heaven, but all of earth. So listen to the end of the story in Revelation 21, where John sees a new heaven and a new earth. He sees that the dwelling place of God is now with man forever. That God will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more and there shall be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore. The curse is gone. The former things have passed away. Behold, I'm making all things new, Jesus says. So in this new heaven and new earth, there'll be no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord will be its light. By its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut because there's no threat, and there'll be no night there. The Lord God will be their light. So, Jesus says, and this is how the whole Bible ends, come, come. Let the one who hears, come. Let the one who's thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, come, come to him. Or else, come to him that you may sing a new song a new song of a lamb who was slain, where he purchased, redeemed with his blood, a multitude which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation, and they will reign with him forever and ever. They will sing his praises forever and ever. Until then, we go to his word and we go to look. We go to see. We go to apprehend him. And then we tell of him to others. We proclaim him to each other. We proclaim him in our neighborhoods, to our friends. We send, we give so that people can go. 
Some go at great risk to the other parts of the world. This is why. This is why we send missionaries far away, our own people. This is why we take some of our best people and plant a church in Rio Rancho. It's got to get over there more, right? It's got to go west. This is why we doubled our missions giving in the last year, by God's grace. Why? Why do we do that and not, you know, make this place bigger? Fix the renovations that, were, that are needed around here. You know, it's 10 years old. It needs a facelift. Why didn't we put money into that? For God's glory. For God's glory. He's the Lord and there's none besides him. Taste and see that he's good.